Welcome to Inspiring People and Places, where we interview national leaders in the architectural, engineering, construction, and development industry in an effort to educate, innovate, and inspire industry professionals to disrupt the status quo, improve their project teams, and steward public and private investments more effectively. I'm your host, BJ Kramer, President and CEO of MCFA. Allow me to introduce today's guest. All right, inspiring people and places. Our next guest is a man of many talents, wears many hats, and I am lucky enough to call him a friend. Dave Foster, President and CEO of Bastone Development Partners. Welcome to the show. BJ, great to be here. Congrats on the podcast. It's awesome. Thanks, buddy. Appreciate you taking the time. Every episode kind of starts with your journey to where you are today. You've been, you've been, you know, from the military to a legal career to an economic development career and, and impacting the city of Camden and then out on your own and doing all sorts of good stuff. So take us back to, to college, maybe your, a little bit of your, your career journey in the military and then, and then how you, you know, what your path has been since. Yeah, great. No, started college for me was was Washington and Lee University down in Virginia, a place that we, we still visit as frequently as we can. Went down there, great academic school, but went down there also to play football. So I was on the football team and, and wrestled as well. Uh, always had an idea that I wanted to join the military. Wasn't exactly sure what that path was going to be. And about midway through my sophomore year, I just I, I recognized the time was right. So the, the story is a little funny. I walked into the recruiter's office in town and I, I was going to enlist. I said, well, that's how do you go in the military? You just enlist. That's what you do. And it happened. Washington and Lee is right next to Virginia Military Institute. Uh, we had known some of the active duty army officers that are stationed there as part of the ROTC program. And I bumped into one of them on my my journey there. And I said, hey, here's what I'm, I'm doing. He said, what? He said, like, you've got this great ROTC program right next door. Why don't we figure out how to make that work? And, and we did. And so in doing that, it actually brought the ROTC program back to Washington and Lee, which is, you know, you'd think funny for a school that is named for two generals. That yeah. The ROTC program. And really proud of that legacy. I did ROTC, Army, Infantry, went through airborne training, Ranger, so forth. I ultimately stationed the 101st Airborne Division, finished up my my first military tour and came here to the Philadelphia area to go to law school and, and as kind of a, a part of business school at the time. So Penn was one of the few schools in the country that let you take a full year, basically, of your law degree at the business school. At the time, JD MBAs didn't really exist. And so that was hmm. a, a great fit for me. Knew that I wanted to be in the world of urban development generally wasn't 100% sure what that meant, but knew that that was a passion of mine, mostly because I was interested in lots of things. I was interested in policy and politics and economics and business and recognized that as a place where it all, all came together. So decided on that path, taking the law school classes and, and the real estate finance over at Wharton set me up for that. But as we were, as we graduated, I was married when I went to law school. I still am to a wonderful wife, Jenny, two kids. Jenny and I had bought a house out in the suburbs, and we both remember it this way. I'm not sure it's exactly how it happened, but we you know, kind of moved in, like looked out the window and saw people pushing baby strollers and said, oh my God, like we're, we're not ready yet. We panicked. 
<laughs> we said one one more adventure, and so I was I was fortunate. I was awarded a, a postgraduate fellowship to go and do real estate investment and development in China with one of the biggest real estate investment companies, and and just had wow. an amazing experience. So at the time, as has been the case for the last twenty years, a lot of foreign money flowing into the Chinese real estate market, and not a lot of good respectable actors to help put that to work. And so our, our company was that. We were able to take in a lot of investment. A lot of my work was structuring that money, bringing it in, getting it into good quality projects around the country. But then we had a, a great network of folks uh, all, all the way throughout Southeast Asia and, and actually up into even in Mongolia. We were able to visit with them, learn about their experiences while, while living in China. I ultimately wanted to start a family. And, and so we came back I practiced law at a, a great law firm here in Philadelphia called Ballard Spar. They were known at the time and still are as, as a firm that was really at the cutting edge of uh, helping the, the work of revitalizing the city of Philadelphia. They were known as a, a place of real civic leadership, and I was proud to be, hmm. be there for that and practiced for about two years, had been involved over across the river in Camden, New Jersey. Some of your listeners may know of as you know, one of the more challenged communities in, in the United States. And an opportunity came up for a, a very small uh, nonprofit. Uh, at the time, it was just one guy running a, a nonprofit around the idea of bringing together the eds and the meds, the healthcare and the higher education institutions in Camden to help create economic development. They were looking for a new director. I saw it as an entrepreneurial opportunity. Most people don't think about that in the nonprofit space, but I said, wow, here's a, here's a real chance to do something and that's meaningful and then grow it. Uh, and I did. So I took over as, as the executive director in, in 2008. The very first thing we did, we missed payroll. I was the only guy on the payroll. We missed payroll the first week that I was there. The- that's, that's entrepreneurial. If, 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 if yeah. on Friday you don't have enough money in the account to pay yourself, that's entrepreneurship. That's right. So the bank account was empty, but was able to, to raise some funds, put it together, started hiring some staff and grew out the team. And eventually, and, and really proud of this, merged with another economic development group in the city called Cooper's Ferry Development Association. And in doing that, we, we created a, a citywide economic development platform that really did and has continued to accomplish a great deal. So uh, let me just do a clarifying Cooper's Ferry was focused on the waterfront and you were focused on Eds and Meds at first before the, the two merged or what was the separation of the mission? That was right. Cooper's Ferry was founded through, as you're, as you're saying, the mission of revitalizing the waterfront in Camden. They had subsequently moved out into some other neighborhood development work. And so they were doing it in other neighborhoods. And then sort of the downtown and the Eds and Meds part of it was the Greater Camden Partnership, which is the organization. Gotcha. Kim is not a big city, and so it made sense to bring that all together under one roof. Did that. And then I, I got very interested. I, I was out of the Army entirely at the time, but lots of my classmates were, uh, were coming back from tours in Iraq and Afghanistan. And as you know, many of the junior officers there, the, the captains and the majors, some lieutenants, end up with the task of running a portion of the city during the, the time that they're there. Right? You've got hey, yeah. this is your sector, this is your neighborhood, and it may not be a fully 
you know, kinetic warfare, the way people tend to think about it and setting ambushes and taking down buildings. But lots of it is just trying to get get the economy back up and going and get things working and restoring infrastructure and so forth. And what I found was that we were missing a lot of the lessons that we had learned back in the United States through our urban development mistakes in the 1960s and 70s and onward. Uh, and so I got, I was able to, to get my way back into the army originally at the Pentagon with a position in, in policy work, helping to shape stability operations generally and think about them differently. I gave a speech up at West Point. They had an expeditionary economics conference where a number of the senior military leaders from Iraq and Afghanistan were back and thinking about, you know, again, sort of this economic stability in, in a, a conflict zone. And I was, I was pretty critical in my, I gave a talk there about the Army's approach. I ran into a great general, H.R. McMaster, who was there, who heard my talk and said, kind of, okay, you think you can do it better? Like, <laughs> over Put it. your money where your mouth is. And so I took a leave from my, my time in Camden, deployed to Afghanistan with General McMaster in, in what was really you know, a, a formative, formative experience for me. And, and he remains a mentor in, in so many ways. But in 2014, I'd been back from Afghanistan and I was, I, I was getting frustrated in Camden with, with a central challenge. And that was the fact that everything that we were doing was built on either philanthropic money or public dollars. And so we would cut lots of ribbons and, you know, shovel dirt and groundbreakings and the governors were there and the mayors and the senators. And, you know, we were, you know, building a certain number of buildings each year and people felt good about that, but we weren't hitting the tipping point. We weren't getting to the point of, of sustainability. We needed private capital to do that. And so I said, this is the challenge that I'm, I'm meant to solve. And, and so in 2014, I left my role in Camden and started my own company, uh, originally called Bastone Development Partners, now actually called BDP Impact Real Estate. And we are we were founded on this idea of how do you get private capital invested against some of the great social challenges that we have, whether it's in our urban communities or issues of affordable housing or others. And so I've run and led my company since 2014. And I'm sure we'll talk about some of the work here today, but, but largely our work is around the country in these areas of social impact investment and development. So almost 10 years uh, that, right. you, that you've been at it. That's right. I, you've got the MCFA 20 logo. I'm, I'm already thinking, what, what's the BDP 10 logo? <laughs> we, uh, I, I have the advantage of coming in 10 years after he started it. So I think we, we really, we, we reconnected or we connected when I uh, landed back here in 2012. Right. So talk to us about what the, the BDP impact model is all about. Yeah. I, you know, give us the, the elevator pitch and then I might you know, pull on some threads. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's a timely question because there's a lot that's being written and, and talked about in, in circles across the country around this question of, of ESG and social impact investing. and What is its role and what is its place? We work squarely in what I would say is the world of social impact investing that can mean different things to different people. So I'll tell you what it means to us. That is we ask our investors to invest their money with us against projects, and in some cases through pooled structures, where they are going to get a financial return 
less than what they would get if they were just investing in a straight kind of market rate project. But they're also going to get a very specific social outcome, whether it's investing in a building that is going to house veterans and help to drive an end to veteran homelessness, might be in a healthcare institution where they're going to see improvements to population health, something that creates jobs for a community, but where they are getting their return both in financial terms, but also in terms of some specific impact that they're aligned with. So is it fair to say that ESG has evolved from what was traditionally corporate responsibility? You know, I mean, I think with any anything like this, co- corporate social responsibility, ESG investing, they, they are relatively new fields. They are not clearly defined, or there certainly isn't necessarily a shared and agreed definition on what they are. They have different degrees to them. I think in the very early going, ESG investing was largely around the idea of not investing in certain things. So invest in lots of market stuff, not expecting to necessarily forego your return, but but you know, not not invested in certain kinds of industries or industries that that had certain practices or companies that pursued you know, certain approaches. And that was, I think, the early version of it. And that that has grown substantially as investors have thought differently about how they want to use their money. What is the role of philanthropy? What is the role of their investment? And what I like to say is that in the same way that nobody thinks twice, if somebody came up and said, hey, I took this job, it pays me a little bit less than this other thing that I was going to do, but it gives me X, Y, or Z. It gives me this great feeling of satisfaction, or I'm really helping people and doing what I'm doing. People think that's great all the time. I mean, in fact, you know, most of the folks that I worked with in Camden and, and even to some extent what we're doing now would say, oh, I could, I could earn more money doing this in Wall Street or with a larger real estate development firm, but I'm doing this and I'm, and I'm doing good things. And that, that's the trade-off that I want and that feels good. I said, there's no reason why that couldn't exist in investing as well. And, and that tends to get much more than to the personal investors. So lots of high net worth individuals, but there are institutions as well. There are banks, there are insurance companies, there are health institutions that have that want to make that trade off. The corporate social responsibility can be part of it. In other words, a company might say, for example, we have a great partnership with, with Home Depot. They may say, look, as part of our corporate social responsibility, we're going to take a portion of our money and put it over against the issue specifically of veteran homelessness and, and try to support that. And so that would be part of corporate so- social responsibility that would also overlap with what we're doing. But it, it's all part of it, generally the same field, just different aspects. The thing that ha- has attracted me to the concept from the outside looking in is that it's essentially sustainable philanthropy, right? So instead of me giving money to a cause i'm investing money in a cause and hopefully that pays some you know the the return on that investment is not as important to me as the impact and the fact that i know that there's some business case analysis being done and there's some some accountability around the philanthropic gift i'm giving so my gift may be i can just keep repeating this gift but i know i'm repeating it by investing in people or projects that are actually getting outcomes. Yeah, you're 100% right. And that, that has been attractive to a lot of folks. And that's why family offices in particular are a great place for us to have this conversation. If nothing else, put the return part of it even aside. 
if I just came to you and said, look, you could give a grant over here. Exactly. Or you could give me your money. I'm going to do the good thing and then give you your money back so you could go do it again. Well, that should be a pretty, pretty good trade-off. I think it's a great trade-off. I, I, and, and I think it could change, you know, back to the, the entrepreneurship and nonprofit, it could change how nonprofits raise money. If, if I, I look at, you know, objectives and key results or KPIs or, or what, you know, whatever that you can define as impact and then building a sustainable financial model around it. To your point, Camden, if, if it's all philanthropic and, and government subsidies, we're not actually making an impact. We just have to keep going back to the same well saying, Hey, we're, we're trying to get to the, we're trying to get to the break even point or the, the tipping point. Yeah. But if you if you have to go in with a macro, and it may require a huge level of investment, right? It, it may say, "Hey, Camden, we can either keep doing this at in, in twenty million dollar you know shots, or we can say the solution is going to cost us four hundred million dollars, and you know we've created a model that says at four hundred million dollars we hit our tipping point a whole lot faster." Yeah. No, you're you're a hundred percent right, and that. What you just described is very much at the core of what we are trying to do. And it's a discussion and podcasts like this are super helpful. So thank you for that. It, it helps people to understand, oh, wait a minute, there is, maybe you think about it as sort of the third way, but you're right to position it between philanthropy and kind of true market rate investment. I, I love it. And so you brought up HR McMaster. I know that you're now at you know involved in the Hoover Fellowship for Veterans at Stanford. That's right. Yeah. And applications are open still for another week or so. It really is a terrific program for veterans who are interested in scaling up some idea that they're working on. So it was originally the, the Hoover Institution is led by Dr. Condoleezza Rice, former, former Secretary Rice, and part of her work to take a generation of post 9-11 veterans and say, how as a country do we take the skills and the leadership and the experience that that cohort has and bring it to the benefit of the country? Very much the story of sort of post-World War II, but of course, in a you know, post 9-11, a much smaller number of people who, who served and, and who are out doing things. And it, it is a, a program where the resources of the Hoover Institution and the whole of the Stanford family, whether it's the business school, law school, the design school, you name it, are brought to bear to support a cohort of right around 10 veterans each year who have an idea that they're looking to scale and and just basically need the a, a little additional support to help get there. So it's a it's part time out there once every six weeks or so folds in with my existing work, but something that folks should should take a look at on the Hooper Institution website. We'll make sure we put a link to that. And what is your you know again thirty second pitch on what you hope to get out of the the experience there? Yeah, so we we have a model right now for our real estate investment that we're out. We're working with with lots of big organizations around the country who are are funding this work, and we're we're looking at at version two point We've been successful beyond our initial expectations in terms of the the scale at which we've been able to get folks interested in investing in in the work. 
but it still is a pretty select group. It's it's the as I was mentioning before, it's some insurance companies and banks and and health institutions, but it is not yet at the level of what you would think of as true institutional investment. There is a gap of 7 million units of affordable housing in the United States. We're specifically focused with our our housing work right now on uh, individuals experiencing homelessness and and very specifically veterans experiencing homelessness. And even if you just talk about the veteran portion of that, the estimates are are above 60,000 veterans across the United States experiencing homelessness. So the amount of capital that we still need to deploy against this challenge requires us to be investable at the very biggest scale. I mean, these these are billion dollar, multi-billion dollar kinds of problems. And so my work at Hoover is saying, okay, we've got a model that's working. We've got lots of projects. We've got 10 buildings, just about a thousand units across the country already. Here's what's happening. Here's what we're learning. What does it look like when we really want to take this to scale? The VA exists to serve our veterans. You bring up 60,000 you know, homeless. This is not, not on the priority list of the VA. Uh, I know that you know, they're, they're wrestling with all sorts of things, including electronic health record system you know, transition to improve healthcare. Why or how do you fit into the, the gap to you know, really take on that mission for them? And I go back to, you, know, you said you got interested in urban development because of its, you know, this crossover of public policy, economics, business, real estate seems to be the place to do that. I think that a lot of us veterans are drawn to making a difference, making an impact, you know, providing for our families and, and growing, but, but, you know, having something more meaningful and more mission focused than just quote work. What's your reaction to where the VA is on this? Yeah, no, look, the VA has, has been, they are, and have been a great partner. It's the challenge of veteran homelessness is a, a multifaceted challenge. It's going to take all corners of the public, the private, nonprofit to, to solve it. The VA is right there and is not shying away from that mission. They've, they've been a great partner. Let me explain. This is what people don't understand. And when I say it, you're going to say exactly what I said, which is like, well, yeah, like, why don't we solve that problem? And that's this. In a city, I'll, I'll take Denver, Colorado, for example. We have a, we're doing a lot of work out there. Beautiful, brand new VA campus, a very strong local VA, local housing partners, so on and so forth. All of this housing work that we are doing is in partnership with an amazing nonprofit called Community Solutions. Community Solutions, and we should talk about them at some point here, is the national leader in working to end homelessness. They, and I can go through their track record and, and some of their, their recent awards and so forth, but really the, they have a model that is fundamentally transforming homelessness in communities across the country. In a city like Denver, they go into that community. They develop a very, with not by themselves, but with the partners that are there on the ground, the public partners, the nonprofits, so forth, a very detailed picture of who's experiencing homelessness down to the by name level. What are the inflows into homelessness? measuring it on a day-to-day basis, understanding very clearly who's experiencing homelessness. And then they work with all the players in the housing system to say, all right, this is your system for what to do when somebody's experiencing homelessness. 
And what they find out in lots of communities when they go in is, well, actually, resources are allocated to the wrong problem. Or if you come into the system this way, it actually ends up at a dead end and you don't you qualify for this, but you don't qualify for that. So they they work with the community and they map that full process through to where people are eligible to get the resources they need to get help. The end of that channel for a veteran is the VA. Okay, so they're doing all this upfront work along with the VA as a partner and the nonprofits, and they get folks all the way through that system. They get to the VA. The VA qualifies them. They give them a housing voucher. So a federally backed rent payment at a what's called in capital FMR, fair market rent, as determined by the federal government in each zip code. They're getting the housing voucher. And you say, that's great. End of story. The guy's got a rent check in his pocket. All he's got to do is go out to an apartment and get it. Nope. Still homeless. Why? Because discrimination, because the markets are super tight, because they don't have the money for a the right down payment or deposit, or they need two and a half times income to qualify. Maybe they have a criminal conviction in their background. Maybe they have an issue with their credit history. And so if you're in a market that's growing, if you're in a Phoenix, you're in a Denver, you're in a Charlotte, you're in a Nashville, you're Jacksonville, Atlanta, those markets are tight and moving. And the landlord is just going to say, eh, thanks, but no thanks. And in right. some places, technically, that's illegal. There's a lot that's been talking about. It, but in most places, it's not. And so these veterans end up all the way through the VA is doing its job. It's doing what it's supposed to be doing. It's giving the individual the housing voucher and they can't get housed. So we said, well, all right. We're going to go buy a bunch of apartment buildings. And as soon as the units turn over, it's going to make them available and, and bring folks in. You're telling me you're going to get the federal government to pay rent. We can house veterans, drive an end of veteran homelessness. And the only thing I have to do is raise money and buy an apartment building. Like, I'm not the smartest guy in the world. but I. <laughs> and that's what we're doing. And, and really, the VA has been a tremendous partner in that. Everybody's working always to get better. But the VA is doing it. They're doing their part. But what we're solving for is the market failure on the back end. That's great. Great to hear. Inspiring People and Places is brought to you by MCFA. MCFA is a CVE verified, service disabled, veteran owned small business. At MCFA, our why is to inspire people and places through project leadership. We provide planning, strategy, program management, and construction management support services to a wide variety of public and private sector clients. Switching gears a little bit, I, I want to talk about you've you've had such a vast experience. Most of our listeners are in probably the engineering construction, some some in the real estate development community. Some are transitioning veterans trying to figure out, you know, what is their next mission or what's their next calling. What are some leadership lessons or or you know career lessons as you've navigated your career that you've learned over over the last 10, 15, 20 years? Yeah. So look, I mean, the, the military is for me the the place where it all begins. And when you think about returning to first principles, so much of it comes from you know what you learn as a as a new lieutenant. Most of what you learn from your first platoon sergeant, probably who I'm I'm still in close contact with to this day, and, and call up when I have a a tough situation on my hands. Uh, you know, I I think the the number one thing, of course, is is you got to take care of people. Right. I mean, that that's where it all starts, you know, whether it's, you know, leaders eat last, but but making sure that you're thinking about the whole of person that is on your team. And, you know, as, as we did as junior officers, that doesn't stop at the nine to five. You know, you cared that somebody had a situation going on at home or 
somebody didn't have enough money or the car broke down or something else. You cared about that. Why? Because you cared about them as people, but also because if you're going to build a good team and have folks you know, follow you into fire, they need to know that you really do care. You care about them. And I think that's taking care of people and the lessons that I learned there, you know, above all else is, is the, you know, for me, the, the North Star. I think beyond that, thinking about the basic military principles of keeping it simple and focusing on the decisive point. What is the thing that we are meant to do here? Are we focused on it? You, you, we're going we're gonna to wake up this morning. We're going to do A, B, C, and D. Can we draw a straight line from each one of those things to the mission that we said we were going to accomplish? Are we being disciplined in doing those things? What's the main effort? What's the supporting effort? What's the decisive point? How are we focused there? I think focusing on that and the resources that come along with it are, you know, again, like like a, a, a core piece of, of what's allowed me, I, I think, to be successful. And the last thing that I'll say, I think people who haven't been in the military, I think, are often surprised to hear this. The military is a very entrepreneurial place. You know, I mean, I don't have to tell you that, you know, it, you know, say, well, you're part of a big organization, you're following following rules. Yeah, when you're, you know, when you're in charge of 30 guys and you're out in the middle of the desert and there's there's nobody else around and you know, the enemy decides to change plans and do something else, you're making the call, right? I mean, you're you're figuring it out. You got a piece of equipment breaks or machinery and and you still have this thing that you got to accomplish. You're figuring out how to do it. And I love that. I mean, it's it's why I don't think I was ever cut out to be you know, senior, senior leader in the military, but being down at that junior level and having that entrepreneurship and that spirit of can do, but also that spirit of must do. Yeah. Like there is not failure in so much of what we're, we're tasked with doing. There can't be. And so you figure out how to make it happen and you get creative in doing it. So I, I mean, those are the three biggest things for, for me in, in translating that into you know, what I think has been my career. Last last kind of question before we go into rapid fire. Any political aspirations at this point? No, and I'll, I'll be candid with it. I I flirted with that idea earlier on. I, I sort of thought that well, maybe that's what I want. Public service to me meant a serving in a, an elected role. And I 2018 flirted with the idea of, of maybe taking a run and, and looking at Congress and, and went all the way through the process of like, what does it mean? And what would my platform be? And went down to Washington and met with lots of elected officials down there and, and talked about it. And what I recognized is that and for the kind of change that I want to make, I'm in the spot to do it at many, many, many times the level that I would be. And that's not to say that our elected leaders are not doing great and big and important things. They are. And I admire them and I admire them for their service. But I, I came to recognize that, boy, this, this is where I, the scale of what I can do, the number of people that I can touch, there, there really is no boundary. I can just keep growing and scaling it and doing it and doing more and don't have to ask for anybody's permission to do it. Yeah. Uh, and that, that feels good to me. So no, that, that's, that's not something that's in the future, but certainly something that I thought about. The, the last line of the West Point mission statement when I was there, it's since changed is, you know, to educate, train, and inspire the Corps of Cadets, you know, et cetera, et cetera, and a lifetime of selfless service to the nation. 
And I wrestled with that line when I was transitioning off the military because I really, you know, kudos to West Point and the process. It really is hammered into your ethos. And I struggled so hard with how am I going to continue a lifetime of selfless service to the nation? And yeah, I can stay in the reserves and feel like I checked that block. But I really do think that all of us in the military want to find a way to continue to to serve and a mission that has meaning. And I love that, you know, I had also contemplated the the political route as like maybe that's the next way to serve. But there are so many ways that we get to serve and 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 give back. So I appreciate, you know, just that short conversation on wrestling through that and recognizing like, hey, I can make a huge impact right where I'm at. And I think I think it was Michael Bloomberg that said, if you're going to run for office, the easiest way to do it is go make a billion dollars before. <laughs> Maybe uh, I'll reconsider if I get to that. <laughs> All right. Some rapid fire questions. Any must read book or most gifted book out of your library? I, I struggle with this because I really have read a, a bunch of great books here recently, but the, the Grant biography by, by Ron Chernow is a... All right. Favorite quote? I, I won't go through the whole thing here, but it is the classic man in the arena quote from, from Teddy Roosevelt. My son, who's Thomas David, is, is Teddy. I, I take great inspiration from Teddy Roosevelt and keep that quote right here next to that's that's awesome. I also have it up there on the top shelf of of my office. I think birds of a feather flock together, yeah. right? What outside of work keeps you busy? You got two kids, you got a wife. Yeah. Most of it is my kids right now and I, I don't say that grudgingly at all. I mean, I I am loving every minute of. My kids are at an age right now, 12 and 14, just about to be 13, 15 where you the, the clock's ticking and, and you can feel it and, and you want to be around and be there for absolutely everything. Aside from that, it's it's the mountains for me and anything, whether it's mountain biking, skiing, hiking, climbing, whatever, but just to be in the mountains. So th- those are my two. Is there a correlation between community so- solutions and Bastogne being in Denver and your love of the mountains? I'm, I'm quite happy that, it, <laughs> that it, it has worked out that way. Although Salt Lake City is our true home away from home and I'm still trying to figure out a way to get a project. <laughs> There you go. All right. If you could have a dinner party with three people, dead or alive, who would they be? Ah, again, another one to to struggle with here. There's a guy that I'm really interested in right now called Rick Rubin. I don't know if folks will know him. Record producer just put out a, a great book called The Creative Act, and I been trying to tap more into my creative side. Then to be very concrete in my thinking and. Really admire Rick Rubin as as somebody who, you know, I, I could could learn a lot from. Oh boy, I, I had so, so many different names. I mean, Teddy Roosevelt always is, is somebody who who comes up, but I I think I would would spread it out. I like I, I think being at a table with folks who are in areas different than me would be really interesting. And so I, I think I would pick somebody from the sciences. You know, maybe an Einstein or somebody like that would come to mind to to fill that out. And then, you know, really, I, I mentioned Grant before. He's a guy I boy I would would love to have have had a conversation with. So could could be somebody in that field as well. But you know, some being at I think the big takeaway for me is 
picking a group of folks who are are doing things that are very different than than what I'm doing. Yeah, well, I think that's a, a good public service announcement to get outside of our echo chamber and 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 mix up our company so that we do get those diverse perspectives and and appreciation for those diverse perspectives. Yeah. Last question, legacy, what do you want on your tombstone? <laughs> I had this conversation with my son the other day. My my answer not too long ago would have been, you know, I, and I we we just closed a, a big project in West Philadelphia just a couple hours ago transforming a a former Catholic hospital into what's going to be an amazing health hub in, in one of the poorest census tracts in America. And, you know, I, I go through the, the projects that we're doing with all of these veterans housing projects and the number of people we've housed. And I, I feel a tremendous sense of legacy about all of that. And candidly, I think it's a big part of what drives the work. I think we all feel, you know, especially having, you know, gone to war and, and come back and, and lost folks along the way, you recognize your time is limited, you want to make it count. So I would have thought about all of that as my legacy, and I, I do in that way. But if I, you were to say, what is the legacy that you want on your tombstone, having been a great father and, and imparted meaningful wisdom onto my children is the thing that's most important. Awesome. And then wrap us out, take us, take us to the end. Anything that you want to leave as closing inspiration to the audience? You know, I'd encourage folks to look at this idea of social impact investing. I really do think there's a lot that can be done with it. A lot of problems that right now seem like they're not solvable because there aren't enough resources. We can just think differently about how we use our money and how it's invested and what we're getting for that investment. I think there's a whole lot that we can do. Awesome. Dave, thanks so much for taking the time with us. And thanks so much for everything you're doing at Bastone. Yeah, you too, BJ. Thank you. All right, buddy. Hey, everybody. If you're enjoying this show, do us a favor and subscribe to Inspiring People and Places on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast hosting platform. We'd also greatly appreciate if you left us a review and shared this with other entrepreneurial public servants and all your friends and family in the AEC space. Be sure to visit our website, www.mcfaglobal.com. Sign up for our newsletter to stay in touch with us and learn about all of the projects and clients we're helping. Last but not least, we are hiring. We are always hiring. Do us a favor. Take a look at what jobs we have open. Contact us through our website or connect with me on LinkedIn. Until next time, have a great rest of your week and a great weekend.